So I think we'll get started. Um, first off, I want to thank everyone for uh, making some time out of their uh, busy evening to join us tonight. And I want to thank our guests and uh, all the other uh, moderators for spending the time to uh, interview and chat about these really interesting topics. So uh, without further ado, welcome everyone. Uh, this is the AO Trauma North America Journal Club. Today, we're going to be talking about three particular papers uh, on proximal humerus fractures. And we'll just kind of get into uh, get into it pretty much right off the bat. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm Jason Strelzo. I'll help moderate the session. I'm from the University of Chicago. Uh, we have uh, with us today, Adrian Huang from University of British Columbia. We have Brianna Fram from Yale School of Medicine and Dave Stockton from uh, University of British Columbia as well, who will be joining us in a moment. They have interviewed our guest lecturers tonight, which I'm uh, very thankful for them for joining us. Uh, to start off, we have uh, Dr. Uh, Rami Al-Raba. Uh, He's from uh, Inglewood Orthopedic Associates in New Jersey. We have Dr. Herman Johal, who will be joining us from McMaster University. And we have Dr. Patrick Curtin joining us uh, all the way from uh, University of Massachusetts. So hopefully you'll hear a little bit more about uh, their papers, why they decided to study what they studied and what they found. And then we'll have a pretty open discussion uh, around those uh, papers. What we're going to do today, obviously, we're going to do a little welcome. Hopefully, this is uh, the most you'll hear me talking. Uh, then we're going to go into our videos. So we'll have three uh, videos back to back, um, and those will be discussing our three papers. Our first uh, video, we're going to be talking about trends in surgical management of the proximal humerus fracture. Uh, the second paper, we'll be talking about reverse total shoulder and its use and cost effectiveness for uh, proximal humerus fractures in the elderly. Uh, and then the third uh, paper is going to be talking about mortality and morbidity of uh, fragility proximal humerus fractures. So that's uh, patients represented uh, to a level one uh, trauma center. Then we're going to open the floor. This is the time for everyone to please fill the Q&A box for questions. And then we'll have a short wrap up at the end. These go on on a monthly basis. So uh, if you enjoyed this and you enjoyed the content, please come back for our next one. And at the end, I'll uh, sort of be promoing that next one for you. So stick around for that. Um, and really the idea is to talk about orthopedic trauma, some articles that uh, we feel are, are really important to the literature. At the end of this session, we hope that you're gonna understand a little bit of the practice management of proximal humerus fractures. We're going to discuss some of the changing philosophies. This is sort of like the moving sand beneath us for proximal humerus and really makes it kind of an exciting topic because there are, is a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, literature out there and trying to make sense of that literature can be challenging. And then we're going to talk about some adjuvants to improve outcomes for patients with proximal humerus and then some specific patient options. Uh, so I'm here with uh, Rami Al-Raba. Um, one of the uh, authors of a recent uh, JBGS open access pub publication on uh, trends in surgical treatment of proximal humerus fractures and analysis of postoperative complications over a decade in nearly 400,000 patients. Uh, so Rami, thanks for agreeing to be interviewed for this. Uh, welcome to AO uh, Trauma North America Journal Club. Um, so uh, I guess, uh, yeah, I guess just just first, Rami, would you mind telling us just kind of, uh, you know, who, who you are and uh, wh where you were at when you did this study? 
Go ahead. Sure, of course. Yeah, thank thank you so much for having me. Um, so my name is Ramiel Raba. I did uh, residency training at Columbia, New York, and then uh, I did fellowship training in sports and uh, shoulder reconstruction at uh, UCSF in San Francisco. And uh, this paper here titled Trends in Surgical Treatment of Proximal Humeral Fractures and Analysis of Postoperative Complications Over a Decade in About 400,000 Patients. Uh, I did this study um, while in fellowship at UCSF uh, last year uh, with the group there. Um, we, we saw a lot of, uh, you know, the impetus for the study there, we saw a lot of uh, proximal humerus fractures and Obviously, they're treated by surgeons of different subspecialties. So trauma surgeons see them, general orthopedic surgeons see these injuries, as well as sports and uh, shoulder uh, trained surgeons. Um, so we wanted to look at how these injuries were treated uh, over the last decade in this country. Um, so the basic summary of this, we looked at the uh, Pearl Diver database, uh, national database in the US. And we looked at the last 10 years from 2010 to 2019. Uh, using diagnostic and procedural codes, we were able to identify patients with proximal humeral uh, fractures uh, over this past decade and to see how they were treated. Um, majority of them were treated non-operatively, uh, but we wanted to look at the ones that did get surgery, what surgery they, they uh, got. So uh, we looked at reverse shoulder arthroplasty, uh, open reduction internal fixation, and uh, hemiarthroplasty. So we found the trends that over the last 10 years, um, open reduction internal fixation and hemiarthroplasty seem to downtrend, and uh, treat, treatment of proximal humeral shaft fractures with, um, sorry, proximal humeral fractures, not shaft fractures, proximal humerus fractures were more commonly treated with uh, reverse shoulders uh, as time went on. Um, the additional goal of the study was to kind of compare um, sort of the outcomes of uh, reverse shoulder and open reduction internal fixation. So we did this by looking at uh, complications. Uh, so the complication rate and reoperation rate of patients who got reverse shoulders versus the ones who got open reduction internal fixation. And we found that um, the complication rate is higher in ORIF patients, and also the reoperation rate is higher in ORIF patients. And we did this in patients who had at least two years of follow-up data uh, in the database. Uh, in addition, we looked at um, emergency room visits and uh, hospital readmission rates uh, within 90 days after surgery. And we found that um, patients with uh, reverse tend to have higher uh, readmission rates. And we think that's probably related more so to their comorbidity index and, uh, and other medical issues because patients who tend to get the reverse are just older and, and uh, sicker patients. So uh, in, to summarize, uh, reverse shoulder replacements uh, is trending upwards for the treatment of proximal humerus fractures, for the surgical treatment of proximal humerus fractures. Um, and also the reverse is associated with fewer complications, uh, lower reoperation rate. However, there does seem to be a higher uh, re hospital readmission rate within 90 days after surgery. 
Excellent. Um, so could you tell us a little bit more about this uh, Pearl Diver database? Uh, so it's actually a national database for the whole U.S. Um, it, it is mostly, uh, from my understanding, a, uh, it captures all the Medicare population. So generally uh, all, all the elderly, but also some commercial insurance payers. But it is not limited to um, a state uh, it's just a national database and, and within it, they have, uh, subsets. So we use the subset of the upper extremity, uh, database subset. So it's patients who had, uh, diagnostic codes, uh, related to the upper extremity, as well as, uh, procedural or CPT codes, uh, or had surgery, uh, with regards to the upper extremity. Great. So. Yeah, I guess the, the kind of the motivation for the question is, what's the potential for um, attrition within that database? Like if, if someone has a complication, um, are they almost always going to be captured? Or is there a, a possibility, even if they switch providers or, or, or something like that, um, uh, can they drop off? Yes, that is one of the limitations in the study. Um, they could certainly drop off but to minimize that that's why for the second part of the study looking at complications and reoperations we only chose patients who had um who had active data for two years so they basically were seen at two-year follow-up but that is certainly a potential limitation for sure great yeah no that's um that's a i think one of the very powerful things about large databases like that and uh just being able to provide commentary and give a pretty accurate snapshot probably of what's of what's actually happening so yeah well, well done for uh for doing that for this fracture um and another question i'm, I'm wondering is in your population what what factors do you think were driving uh, which surgery got got performed? Um, you know, do you think patients, depending on where they present, have an equal opportunity to to, to potentially be treated with uh, ORIF or a reverse total shoulder? Or what kind of factors do you think are are driving those treatment decisions? Yeah, that that's a great question, and it sort of alludes to what we were uh, talking about before. Um, certainly any surgeon looks at basically the bone quality, uh, the, the, um, the fracture itself, uh, and the patient's age. However, all that being equal, uh, patient presenting to certain hospitals or certain systems or, or certain geographical area, um, and depending on who's on call. So I know, you know, trauma, trauma trained surgeons like yourself may be more, um, more willing to ORIF, whereas in my hands, for example, an elderly patient with a four-part proximal humerus fracture, um, I would uh, I would feel definitely more comfortable uh, doing a reverse, and that's you know that speaks to our training. You're trauma trained, and I was more um, shoulder uh, reconstruction and sports trained, and um, so that that definitely plays a factor. We weren't able to obviously uh, account for that in this study um but it, it's interesting that all things being equal looking at general trends and this is you know 400,000 patients so with all things being equal it does look like the trends are are increasing for for the reverse replacement um in meat for me in my hands i would certainly feel uh 
uh, more comfortable and getting more of a stable construct doing uh, a reverse for, for someone over the age of 65, 70 uh, with a four-part proximal humerus fracture. Great. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's a phenomenally interesting, I think, part of uh, the treatment of this of this fracture uh, is kind of the overlap between um, some sp subspecialties uh, within orthopedics and kind of how that's uh, playing out, I think is really kind of well captured as a summary in your, uh, in, in your paper. Um, and, and another thing that you mentioned in the, uh, in the discussion is that, you know, perhaps the complications experienced in the reverse group are, are more severe. Um, do you think that kind of tempers surgeons willingness to perform reverse uh you know it still in the end it was only kind of being performed in about five percent of of proximal humerus fractures kind of from the from the more recent years um but uh how does that kind of uh, could you kind of expand a little bit more on the complication profile uh between orif and uh, and the reverse group Sure. I mean, uh, the most common complication was stiffness in both cohorts, but um, the reverse uh, replacement, you know, usually when, when you do an ORIF, uh, uh, the first two years, once something kind of, once it heals, uh, you have a low risk of infection in the future. But when you implant uh, a joint, you have uh, an infection risk basically for the rest of your life. Uh, and so that's where that more... Um, uh, the more, you know, invasive explant and, and doing an antibiotic spacer uh, with the reverse comes in. Uh, so it is a potential risk. I think it goes back to uh, the surgeon's training. I think um, if you as a surgeon are not comfortable dealing with all the potential complications of that surgery, um, then probably the reverse should be done by somebody who is comfortable um doing uh, a reoperation and a potential explant and revision um, of, of the shoulder. Um, in terms of deterring surgeons for doing a reverse, um, you know, I'm not so sure. It's still a, it's a risk. It's, it's relatively low. Um, but there have been some more recent studies, especially at a core, that show uh, even when you compare the cost-effective analysis of of treating these um, these fractures, whether it be ORIF or reverse, reverse still had um, still was more cost effective. Um, so in the long run, you know, when they look at um, um, multiple factors, not just the surgery itself, but time off of work, et cetera, et cetera, the um, the reverse was still more cost effective. So I, I think I think at the end of the day. Um, uh, this, the surgeon should be sort of comfortable dealing with all potential complications, um, but I wouldn't say it's it's a it's a deterrent because if you were to do an ORIF first, uh, there's been multiple studies showing if you end up doing a reverse in a revision setting, they don't do as well um, as if you had done it as the index procedure, and this has been replicated, you know, for for hips as well um so obviously as surgeons we want to try to do one best uh operation from the get-go and uh and so another uh, yeah another question kind of getting uh towards the uh the the summary is that um you know clearly proximal humerus fractures are 
an area or particular fracture where really high quality evidence is is lacking. Um, and yet clearly we see these shifts in management trends over time. Um, so what are your thoughts on what's driving these these changes? Um, you know, I think that's a great question. I think part of it is is uh, is industry, I would have to say, you know, with these implants uh, evolving um, and with surgeon education and being more comfortable with these implants, I think part of it is industry. Uh, but also, I really think it's um, the, the, you know, the technical, I want to say, ease of operation uh, with reverse as opposed to ORIF. Um, certainly, for, it could be just unbiased because of my training. Uh, for me, I, I think uh, a reverse is, is technically easier than, uh, than an ORIF. Um, and if it if it has better PROs and better patient outcomes, then it, it's a win-win. Uh, whereas trying to um, reduce all parts of the fracture and be biologically friendly and being able to achieve, you know, uh, adequate fixation. Um, so, so I think part of it is industry. Uh, part of it is uh, surgeon surgeon education with these new implants. Um, um, and I think, you know, in, in the future, I think we're only going to see these um, these reverses become more common because, as you know, you know, this kind of became FDA approved in the U.S. in 05. But really, it wasn't starting to get implanted uh, until the 20 teens in, in higher frequency. And now there's more and more studies coming out uh, that even for elective uh, surgeries, the reverse is becoming more popular than, than an anatomic, for example. Um, so I, I think th those two things, the, the industry and, and, you know, uh, technical, uh, ease of implantation, I think are some big driving factors. Perfect. Great. Well, um, uh, thanks so much for coming on the AO Trauma North America Journal Club. Uh, any, uh, any, uh, anything final to say before we sign off? Uh, no, I'm, you know, I'm uh, excited for the future uh, and to see uh, more uh, more studies come out about proximal humerus fractures. I, I think we will continue to see an increasing trend of reverse, uh, but we'll see what happens. It's it's our generation, uh, me, you and I, that's going to have to deal with all the complications for reverse. You know, we already are seeing some, but I think um, our generation of surgeons is going to see a lot more, you know, periprosthetic fractures, some um you know some stress fractures and, and some complications are reverse and it'll be up to us to kind of uh, uh see how we can treat those well so uh i'm looking forward uh, for the future absolutely thanks rami welcome to the ao journal club on proximal humus fractures my name is dr adrian huang i am an assistant professor at the university of british columbia in vancouver canada and i am very pleased to have with us today dr herman johal he is an assistant professor at mcmaster university which is in hamilton ontario canada and he is here to talk uh, about his study the cost utility analysis of treatment strategies for complex proximal humus fracture in older adults. Uh, welcome, Dr. Joe Hall. Great, Adrian, thanks for having me. Thanks for the invitation uh, to participate. 
It's wonderful having you here. And from a very personal perspective, my subspecialty is upper limb. Thank you for doing this study because I think this was a very important study to have where you actually have one that compares non-operative intervention to all the surgical treatment strategies all in one studies. It was great to be part of this, uh, the team that investigated this question. And, and you know, I really do have to give the credit uh, to the entire team um, that collaborated uh, to put this initiative forward, uh, and especially uh, San Calic, our um, lead author there, uh, one of our uh, second year residents at McMaster, who um, really, uh, I would say, learned a lot through this analysis um, and, and really appreciated, uh, as we all did, the, the challenges in, in comparing uh, not just two interventions, but broadening that scope up to, to all of the possible interventions. You're saying too that cost utility analysis and health economic analysis is also just an interest of yours, is that correct? Absolutely. And I, I really uh, gained an appreciation for the role, um, you know, that cost analyses play in our decision making, but also how uh, they sit in, into the overall spectrum of value uh, that, uh, you know, patients and, and providers have to decide upon when coming to treatment decisions. So, you know, cost analyses is just one tool in our toolbox, uh, and, and but certainly a critical one. So why don't we just dive in and uh, why don't you tell us about your study? Uh, well, great. And again, I have to give the credit to our lead author, Hassan, who's uh, prepared some of these slides, uh, provide a good summary of uh, the study here. So we performed a cost analysis, uh, cost utility analysis, looking at treatment strategies for uh, proximal humerus fractures um, in older adults. And as we discussed, this is a complex issue involving um, uh, the upper extremity in geriatric patients specifically with low energy injuries that uh, may uh, result in very high, high energy fracture patterns and also high energy injuries as well that uh, pull treatment challenges uh, when you have three to four part proximal humerus fractures. But across that spectrum of patients, we've explored uh, many treatment strategies, including non-operative management, open reduction, internal fixation, uh, hemiarthroplasty and, and more recently uh, a reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. And lots of summaries have come out, uh, uh, recent reviews um, to help summarize the, the clinical evidence that has shown there may be some high quality evidence that directs, uh, that, that demonstrates that there are favorable outcomes for reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. However, it's important to note that the cost of reverse total shoulder is up to four times that of uh, an open reduction internal fixation. Uh, and so it really poses the question, should we should we pursue this as high cost, but potentially high value? So we have to weigh the benefit to the cost and the cost utility analysis is an excellent tool that allows us to do that. And that uh, really allowed us to pursue the objective uh, where we wanted to assess the cost effectiveness of a reverse total shoulder arthroplasty, relative conservative management, open reduction, internal fixation, and, and hemiarthroplasty. Um, and so to do this, because there's no real study that compares all of these, there's no clinical uh, evidence that we could directly apply. We modeled it, and, and there's various ways you can model. We chose a decision tree uh, to, mo to model the, the one and two-year outcomes, so the more acute um, outcomes. Uh, and then extended that using a Markov model, which, which really took this patient population and, and followed them for the rest of their years, essentially, that they were living with this uh, uh, treatment decision. And it was constructed to evaluate those treatment outcomes. We uh, were able to assess the change in, in costs the, or the difference in costs as well as the difference in quality adjusted life years, which is the key functional outcome. Uh, we're looking at in a patient population uh, of 75 years old uh, and older, uh, primarily female. Um, and uh, looking at a one, two year as well as a lifetime time horizon, we used our own Canadian 
healthcare system to provide the single payer perspective and we used a willingness to pay ratio or essentially a threshold value of $50,000 Canadian per quality adjusted life year gain, which is, is a commonly uh, commonly used threshold. Uh, and we used um, different parameters to model the, the health utility outcomes, which were primarily evidence that came from level one RCTs. Uh, for costing, we used our own regional databases um, and, and local costs uh, to re represent costs of similar Canadian healthcare systems. Um, and then we used the transition probabilities. So the transition probabilities essentially reflect the chance of something happening, whether it's uh, you know a reoperation and infection, using uh, mostly evidence from level one uh, RCTs. Um, and, and where there wasn't available evidence, we used an expert panel to provide an opinion. Um, so these are our, our central models that we constructed um, uh, on your left. You see the decision tree model used for the one and two year outcomes where we could essentially model each uh, outcome and the potential uh, subsequent outcomes over a, um, a one and two year period. Subsequently, uh, those patients fed into a lifetime model using uh, very commonly available Canadian data uh, for, um, at, the, at the population level, be able to model um, uh, expected life years uh, and the functional uh, probabilities and declines over the, that restful lifetime to get an overall change in costs each year and the subsequent change in qualities for, for each of these pathways to get those incremental cost utility ratios. So these are the results. Um, uh, you'd expect the non-operative management treatment decision to be the, uh, the least costly, but there's still a cost associated with that primarily from you know, initial treatment uh, and then the subsequent uh, risks of that patient needing some sort of uh, operative management if, say, there was a complication and, and also subsequent uh, days in hospital that were associated with that. As you look at each of the subsequent um, uh, treatments, uh, you can see that OPA, an open reduction to fixation, is about the same price as a, as a hemiarthroplasty, but the outcomes were drastically different. And, you know, the most expensive uh, option, which was not uh, you know, that much different when you consider the costs of those other operative options were the reverse total shoulder. Um, and you can see that actually had the largest functional improvement. And, and so when we compare each of those values, what you see is, is, uh, comparing, uh, reverse total shoulder arthroplasty to the other options. Uh, the difference in cost over quality adjustment life years was, was, uh, roughly 7,500, which is, you know, well under what we consider for the threshold compared to hemiarthroplasty option, which, uh, you know, did have some improvement, but not enough to justify the increased costs. And then an open reduction of compensation is what we call dominated or not effective relative to the other oper uh, options, given uh, the average impact and, and functional improvement you'd expect. Those are outcomes that we got um, using the, the the parameters you fed in from level one RCTs as well as expert opinion, but the, you know we acknowledge there's some estimate and a confidence interval around each of these parameters. So we were able to model that using uh, sensitivity analysis, where we changed one of the parameters and then we ran the models, and, and that's where we were able to to get some some uh, benchmarks and thresholds around our data. You know we used the base case value, uh, expecting the probability of revision versus shoulders. Um, in the first two years to be uh, around 2%. That revision rate has to be as high as 11% for a hemiarthroplasty to be considered a potentially better option. Cost is an important one to discuss. And, and you know, we, we used a rough uh, base case value of about $20,000. And, and in certain uh, settings, uh, the clinical settings, that number um, is going to vary. So, but, you know, the treatment cost would have to be upwards of $65,000 Canadian, which um, 
you know, in our model currently, uh, you wouldn't see. And and then you look at the expected utility improvement, and, and you know, we'd have to expect the improvement uh, with a health, the hemiarthroplasty or another arthroplasty option to be over 0.9 out of one, which is you know a really high uh, improvement. And, and similarly, the well after reversible shoulder would have to be less than 0.778. Uh, and so, you know, in considering the average effect in the literature that we were able to, to input into our models, well as some expert opinion, it appears that reverse total shoulder arthroplasty uh, is the most cost-effective strategy in the management of these patients and older adults who need a, uh, an intervention. And then sensitivity analysis demonstrated that there may be some changes in situations that uh, this may not be the case, but those are increasingly impossible in the clinical environment that we uh, work in today. Obviously, there's, there's some strengths limitations and especially a lot of limitations, I would say, that go into this, this modeling where we you know, have gaps in the literature and we have to use uh, estimates around those gaps um, uh, and you know given that we used our Canadian healthcare setting um, you have to consider where you're going to apply this evidence but that's you know the purpose of some of these sensitivity analysis is to give the, the readers a chance to go through and decide how, how directly they're going to apply this evidence and how much it applies to their clinical setting um, but ultimately you know I think more clinical evidence um, uh, more high-level clinical uh, evidence is needed to inform some of these gaps, and, and that would improve the conclusions that we would be able to put forth for you guys in the conference with those conclusions as well. Thank you. That's an amazing breakdown. You know, a couple of questions for you, and hopefully maybe some things that will springboard some discussion, but this is a, a model study, and in your study also, you kind of talked about inter, uh, confidence intervals in that reverse is uh, 66% likely to be the most cost-effective. And so does that take in all of these modelings and all of these confidence intervals that you're, you're talking about then? Yeah, and that's sort of the confidence with which we can put forth those decisions. And then the more high level evidence that goes into these estimates, the tighter those confidence intervals get uh, around those um, uh, those parameters. So we put, you know, we can only, as we run a model, we can only really run it with one number at a time. But yeah. uh, if you run the model over and over again, you can sample across that confidence interval. Uh, and if we can narrow that confidence interval, then potentially we can, we can have a higher probability of that being the case if the uh, you know reverse total shoulder arthroplasty being uh, the most cost effective option 66% of the time takes into account the uncertainty yeah. um, with those with those uh, estimates that go into yeah. it and that being said you know it's uh, anytime you apply clinical evidence you have to consider your own setting and, and that's where you know they're, they're, you have to consider what's best in your hands and for some surgeons um, they might be at various ends of that spectrum with those confidence interval with their outcomes as they can expect. So that's a great point. So that brings up two questions. Uh, first is you gave some examples of when your assumptions would maybe not be valid. Um, however, it seems like the instances that you brought up are not something that would realistically happen in real life. For example, revision rates of a reverse being 11% or non-operative fractures having a, a quality of 0.93, which as you mentioned, it was actually more than their pre-injury state. So even though it's quote only 66% certain, I mean, the times when it wouldn't be seem quite out of reach. Well, and yeah, and I think, uh, you know, there's two ways to think about the sensitivity analysis we performed and, and that uh, probability or likelihood of this being a cost-effective 
uh, intervention. And so that, you know, one is that confidence interval I discussed where, you know, based on the evidence, the, the range of values and what we'd expect in terms of, you know, 25% or X number of percent variations around our estimates. That's what goes into the probability of an intervention being uh, cost effective to a specific um, uh, level of confidence or probability. But then, you know, as we got those outcomes, we did the, another type of sensitivity analysis is you essentially just pick an important parameter and change it to the extent that, you know, that number would have to change for, for the, the conclusion to, to switch. And so that's some of these numbers that you see are, are from an analysis of that nature where, um, you know, it might be uh, in something that isn't necessarily clinically plausible, but if you were going to say have, uh, for instance, let's look at, you know, a hemiarthroplasty uh, having to be, bring the outcome to, to 0.9 out of one, um, which is very high. And as you mentioned, higher than the pre-injury level. Well, you know, maybe not a hemiarthroplasty specifically, but if you were going to be looking at something that you would maybe consider even more cost-effective than a rotator, sorry, than a reverse total shoulder arthroplasty, it would have to be effective to, to that extent. Um, it is another way you could think about, you know, how to apply that evidence, but, you know, is a hemiarthroplasty ever going to, to reach that threshold? Probably not with the current technology, but it, I think, um, you know, that sort of speaks to how a reverse total shoulder might function. I would say they perform well in the skilled hands to apply them. And then that's the other way you, you really need to consider the conclusions of the study is, is what, uh, how does something function in my hands? And, and maybe, you know, in, as it, with an arthroplasty, in the arthroplasty option um, uh, options list, uh, you know, in, in certain people's hands, maybe a hemiarthroplasty might not perform the mm. 0.9%, but a reverse total shoulder also might not perform to the threshold uh, that we applied in the study. I guess the, the next question then is, does proximal fracture now become more of a subspecialized treatment, especially the three and four parts, you know, because arguably, you know, most of us are trained to do a shoulder uh, open arch internal fixation, but not everyone is trained to do either a hemi or a, or a reverse. So is this something that maybe we should be getting more specialized to kind of get the outcomes that are available or that are, I guess, required for this? Well, I think that's, you know, that's a great question. And, and I think it, it pulls into uh, the fact that you need to consider um, where the evidence comes from and, and, and the data, uh, you know, there's the, the real world data uh, that we have, there's the, the expert opinion, um, but then also those real world studies, um, it, part of the challenges with applying that evidence is there's also limitations of how those studies were done. So for instance, if you consider something like proffer, uh, which is was very high quality, um, high level RCT where we did have to, then some of those estimates were uh, informed by the proffer uh, study. Um, you know, that was a study looking at a op versus non-op proximal humerus fractures. The conclusion was non-op is, is, is better, performs better than operative. Um, however, the patient population, you know, some that excluded patients who, who would be getting uh, an operation in anybody's hands. So then, you know, now that you have to consider these other options that we present here, where if you're going to be operating on that patient, which of these options are going, are, are you going to apply? Uh, and, you know, uh, it, on the average effect uh, across those options, uh, you know, it seems like a reverse total shoulder uh, would be better. Um, but there are instances, uh, you know, say in emergency situations, open fractures, 
um, other uh, situations, maybe that resource isn't available to you for a variety of reasons, uh, you know, and that you shouldn't feel uh, that you shouldn't be doing an open reduction internal fixation, but just uh, if you can, maybe for that patient who needs an operation, then if providing access to a reverse total shoulder arthroplasty uh, may be something that's worth part of being part of the discussion at least. I think this is, you know, as uh, as complex as, as, as this study would be in terms of the methods and the analysis, I think it's always important to consider um, this is only one part of the uh, one piece of the puzzle when we're making these, these treatment decisions. And, um, you know, it's uh, there may be situations uh, where uh, it, it, I can apply this and, and get that patient to, to the right person's hands to get that um, uh, reverse total shoulder. Um, but if I, I can't reliably perform that operation to, to, I would say, the parameters that we lay out in an analysis like this, then you know you can then you would still need to consider those other treatment operations. What is, I guess, the one takeaway that uh, you'd want people to take away from your uh, from this paper? I think yeah. an important contribution of this paper uh, to the evidence is that we need to look at these high resource uh, treatment uh, options in a different perspective than I think the traditional way that uh, a lot of administrators and healthcare systems make these decisions. And, and oftentimes these are very siloed decisions. These are very, you know, single um, focus budgets uh, that lead to, uh, I would say, in a single payer healthcare system, uh, providing some restriction into, say, the application of reverse total shoulder. Uh, and I think what this does is it draws that treatment decision away from that single silo. And, and when you're considering a cost analysis or any sort of, I would say, value literature, you want to be able to, to, to look at it and, and, and bring that to the decision maker subsequently um, by connecting those silos. And, and so, you know, not, not just, you know, I get the reverse total shoulder is a very uh, high ticket item. But, you know, there's less reoperations. And for that patient, there's important functional improvement that might lead them to, to being discharged earlier or uh, fewer length of stay days uh, or lower lengths of stay and, and, and other sorry, complications that these decision makers um, sometimes lose perspective of. So I think uh, an important takeaway is, is, is arguing for um, uh, the application of this literature across the different silos I think that would be affected by it. What are the motivations for doing this study? Yeah, so I, um, during my research year, um, I'm the research resident at my home program at UMass. It felt to me like a lot of the fragility fractures we were seeing weren't doing as well as we had thought they might. Like, I think in publications, like we kind of understand that geriatric hip fractures have a high mortality rate and benefit from all these pathways and resources and uh, osteoporotic care and co-management. But it felt like as a consult resident and junior resident that we were seeing other types of fractures that were um, kind of these fragility fractures but because they generally were treated non-operatively, weren't really falling to our purview, but also in kind of chart review weren't doing great. So that was kind of the prompt to just like look further um, and in kind of my research lit review, looking at proximal humerus fractures, there wasn't as much out there on kind of how these patients do and, uh, their morbidity and mortality. And so it, it was 
kind of the first step in looking at some of these fragility fractures and trying to figure out what we can do to kind of hopefully start improving their outcomes. Take us through a little bit sort of the, the design of the study, because it was a retrospective chart review, right? Yeah, so the, the design was to look at all of our institutional um, data at proximal humerus fractures, specifically the fragility fractures. So what we, those patients more specifically, and then tried to set up um, certain standard parameters and risk factors that we thought were going to be important. So um, look at their handedness relative to their um, injury, their side of their injury, whether they got surgery or not, um, how sick they were, of which we used the Charleston comorbidity index as one of the main driving factors. So pulling all of that as in addition to a few other things, um, as well as uh, also primarily their mortality. So for anybody, even if it, we were pretty sure somebody had passed, we would still mark them as alive so that we weren't overinflating our death rate. So even if somebody was like leaving CMO, um, you know, it, terminal extubation and, and going home, if we didn't have that in the chart and they didn't have an obituary, we would mark them as alive so that we weren't incorrectly elevating our, our mortality numbers. Did you collect information in advance on patients' uh, assistive device use for ambulation? And if yeah, so so the, yeah. yeah, we did. Um, so the assist devices is part of our protocol for, as I'm, it is for a lot of orth, orthopedists, you know, part of our consult notes and part of something we ask about for mobility. So the good news is that what was in pretty much everybody's um, note somewhere, if they made contact with us, we did one thing that we had hoped we could have recorded and weren't able to do the limitations of the study is, you know, their advancement and, and seeing, you know, if, you know, post-injury, how well they bounce back and their escalation of getting back to, they were, let's say, a community ambulator and then went down to a cane or walker and then went back versus if they kind of stayed at that lower threshold, if that meant anything. We were able to get that information, but we didn't publish on it just based on the fact that we couldn't get enough um, reliable information for that to be made available, unfortunately. Were people being indicated for surgical stabilization or surgical treatment of their proximal humerus fracture based on need for an assistive device, um, just based on your you know knowledge about the cohort? Yeah, I, I would say anecdotally and kind of looking through our numbers, um, you know, we had uh, 379 patients ultimately in our cohort uh, the, the the whole proximal humerus or, or you know upper extremity fracture stabilization to help aid in mobilization um, that I know we do in trauma sometimes we were, was a little less applicable in this cohort compared to some of the polytraumas that we do that for. Um, there was a couple patients that did get surgery, um, and statistically they were found to it was the only protective factor, which really was more of an indication that these were a healthier group of patients that were getting elected to, to proceed with surgical fixation or, um, or arthroplasty. Um, but the, I think the driving factor with that is that you know, the, some of these patients were just too frail to get surgery or um, even the ones that you know, might've been operative, they, they still were unsafe. Um, to get surgery. Sort of to, to summarize it, 
looks like the only uh, treatment characteristic, the only modifiable factor you guys found associated with the decreased risk of mortality and association um, was surgical fixation or some sort of operative treatment of the the fracture all the other things were non-modifiable is that an accurate statement yeah and that we were curious to see what else might have played in i think some of our hypotheses from some of the the people on the project were that um there there might be handedness so that if they if it was the same the the contralateral side and they still had a good hand that that might show in increased survivability or, or, or some mortality protection because they still have the ability to kind of better take care of themselves with their dominant hand. Um, the, the, we had a similar model project that we had worked on that's currently um, submitted for publication looking at uh, LC1 pelvis um, type injuries and again, fragility fracture uh, type patients that the protective factor for them was actually follow up with a primary care physician and being in close contact with their uh, medical provider. Um, and so that was found to be protective for them. And it seemed to be because they were able to better address some of the other things that are going on that are causing them to fall. So their neuropathy from their diabetes, their COPD and their lack of oxygens, fall risks where they're tripping on throw rugs at home or their O2 tubing, like these things that um, ultimately are leading to their initial presentation. And we were trending that way with the proximal humerus fractures, but we either had, um, you know, maybe, maybe we don't see some of their follow-ups in their um, medical or primary care docs in our system and, and are not capturing that correctly, or in this case, it's just trending towards being significant, but just isn't we're underpowered or potentially it's not significant at all but that was definitely something that we had hypothesized going in but did not prove to be true in this patient cohort or in our patient population uh with regards to this study is it going to change anything you're going to do um treatment wise and you know what's the we'll start with that question is it going to change anything you're going to do treatment wise the next time you see a geriatric proximal humerus fracture with now my philosophy's changed quite a bit and you know sometimes this is their first interaction on osteoporotic care um that's something that hasn't been raised as a discussion with them either to, to for uh, poor access to their primary care or maybe this is just their first fracture so talking to them about whether or not they've um pursued some sort of osteoporotic care or workup and is is something that i'll now talk about in a lot of these patients at least in our group will say kind of no. Um, so we're getting them tied in for that. I think another change has been, um, instead of also kind of downplaying, well, the good news is no surgery. Sometimes this is not that big of a deal. You just need time to heal. Um, also saying, you know, this, this can be associated with a high um, complication rate um, over the next couple months. And sometimes that's because of other things going on, other medical problems, or sometimes it's because people, you fall once, you can fall again, and, and using that to kind of dig a little deeper to, to make sure that even if we're not the ones directly managing it, that they're tied in to see uh, their PCP. Um, great. I think long-term and institutionally, it would be nice if we can, we have a good hit pathway, trying to work on connecting people with 
um, resources if they come in with a geriatric hip fracture, both in in house with geriatric co management, but then also post op, making sure if they are applicable, getting them into endo and osteoporotic care. Really, though, it's, you know, the, the sooner the better, and the amount of prevention we can do, the better. And I think that. Um, some of these patients are still on the later end of that timeline, but it's still earlier than some of the hip fracture patients. Yeah, yeah, it's all speaking to that quote-unquote own-the-bone um, initiative or concept um, that when someone presents with their first osteoporotic fracture, um, that just because they're seeing an orthopedic surgeon, they should be plugged into a medical provider um, who can help, you know, initiate osteoporosis workup and uh, management to try to prevent loss of future bone density, right? Um, yeah. And uh, and so it sounds like you, you know, you're interpreting this as this paper just shows that proximal humerus fractures, geriatric low energy ones are akin to hip fractures in that they're really a sign of, of overall frailty, that someone's balance is starting to get poor, that maybe they're not doing so well taking care of themselves at home and that they may need more directed medical um, and uh, living situation interventions, um, and that surgery probably isn't going to change, um, at least based on your interpretation of the results, their outcome, um, even if, you know, they're a pre-injury assisted ambulator and, oh, we can, you know, stabilize your proximal humerus or do a reverse total shoulder and let you use it right away. Um, but that's not really what's, what's happening here. Um, what do you think the, the next step is in terms of next study, the next question, the next potential intervention? Yeah, so I, I think that, um, you know, unfortunately, like you said, it would be great if we could just operate on all these and they would they would do better. But looking at our data more closely, clearly the, the operative patients had far lower Charleston comorbidity indexes, and it wasn't that they were doing better because they had mobilization. They were doing better because they were baseline healthier individuals that we were operating on. And so kind of the next steps is this this project was hopefully more of a pilot study and a, a good marker to just say these patients don't always do well here's some numbers to kind of proof of concept that now how can we do better so i think that the how can we do better aspect of this would be looking at some of these patients prospectively um trying to intervene with them earlier so um trying to get a pathway set up to get them into endo referrals or or into our own clinics for for own the bone depending on you know institutionally how things work at various places but trying to intervene on osteoporotic care for some of these patients and counseling on fall prevention and getting them tied into um both us and a P, you know, some some form of pcp um, or geriatrician and then seeing how how does that affect their mobility, their morbidity, and their mortality in a prospective, just looking at them and then kind of comparing that to this? Um, you know, it'd be nice to do it that way as opposed to like a randomized, you know, uh, group prospectively, because at this point we sort of know that they're they're not getting enough. So it would be nice to use these numbers as a as a benchmark and then see what we can do to improve. Um, instead of withholding some of that information from patients going forward. So um, some of it's definitely research-driven, but I think some of it's just kind of QI and quality pathway improvement at some of these institutions would be sort of the next steps using this um, 
kind of pilot study numbers and information. Yeah, excellent. Um, you know, to your point about getting people hooked up with a PCP or a geriatrician, uh, sometimes I think that having one home physical therapy or occupational therapy visit for someone to actually go through and say, this is a throw rug, this is a trip hazard, and remove things and put a piece of neon tape on the step between the living room and the kitchen and actually physically reduce the fall risk um, could work wonders. Um, and if you had follow-up in this, this cohort, we're able to see how many people had a additional fragility fracture within a year, uh, which I don't think um, you reported in the paper. I don't know if you could see that information. Then you could do that comparative study um, with an intervention cohort and say- Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think that we, we could see that for some patients, not enough to reliably report it. But I mean, there were certainly people who came back with um, a couple with hip fractures, some with some vertebral body compression fractures, just other kind of standard osteoporotic fractures that, you know, clearly these you're at risk for one, you're at risk for more. So getting intervention on would be, would be, would be ideal for sure. Any other key takeaways, things you'd sort of like to say for, for the listeners um, about the topic, about the study? Yeah, I just, I think that, uh, no matter what people have and patients have, the, the one thing that kind of kept coming back um, following these patients and with other uh, patients like this are that this is such a great intervention and touch point because patients are able to do something and then they can't or something hurts and they want to not have that happen again. And so I think part of the reason that's, that's why we have such good follow-up in some of our orthopedic clinics and then these patients aren't necessarily going to their PCP is they're like, well, my arm hurts. So I want to go to the doctor. That's the arm doctor that's taking care of this. And so us advocating for them to see a PCP or prevent fall risks or work on their other medical comorbidities. Um, you know, they remember that because they're, they're so hyper-focused on the fact that they're here for this, and so anything they can do would help. So if we kind of help tie that together, I think that that will make a big difference as well. Awesome. So um, th those are the three videos. Hopefully that's stimulated some questions for everyone. I know there's already some questions in the chat, and I see uh, a couple of questions in there now. So if you have additional questions, please throw them in the Q&A, and we're going to get to them. I'll probably start with the Q&A questions. Um, just uh, just so we're um, answering those right off the bat, because I think we've got a little bit of time. So the first one that came through um, was a really interesting one, which was uh, from Robert. So thanks, Robert, for sending that in. And this question was really longevity of uh, reverse total shoulder for fracture versus degenerative OA. And I think uh, both myself and Brianna answered that. But just for those that didn't get a chance to read the article, there's a couple of uh, recent meta-analyses uh, suggesting that the outcomes of reverse for fracture are not the same uh, and have a slightly different risk profile compared to our sort of more quote-unquote elective or um, uh, rotator cuff type uh, degenerative um, reverse. I don't know if anyone on the panel has any other thoughts about the data out there about trauma versus elective uh, reverse shoulder. 
I, I think that's accurate and based on uh, some, some of the, the more recent literature, as you mentioned, we did try to model some of that into our cost analysis and, and you know, did account for the fact that, you know, although elective virtual shoulders do have this, this great track record of these functional outcomes, we can't quite expect that same um, same result in the trauma population. So that's, a, you know, a real phenomenon, you know, where, where we did have some gaps in our models uh, and tried to adapt some data from reverses. We did try to, from in the elective population, did discount for that very same reason. Um, and there's real world uh, literature that supports that. Yeah, that's great. I think that one of the the second question that came up from that, and and Robert asked sort of a little bit of a follow up, and I'm I I think I'm kind of interested in this, which is what do you think the role is for? Because there's some expanding data to suggest you know patients who have a second we're going to call it a secondary reverse total shoulder, so patient who's had a trial of non op or have had a primary ORIF attempt and then have gone on to subsequent reverse, some of the recent data suggests that maybe those outcomes are not as poor as maybe the historic data suggested. Um, and so I'd be interested to hear kind of across the panel what people, what people think that the role is for that, particularly in sort of the cost analysis, um, and then looking at the differences between, um, you know, ramming for your study, for instance, looking at uh, looking at complication profiles. Yeah, so I guess I'll start us off and say, I um, it's I think it's very interesting because I think it gives you a new toolbox uh, or tool. So to say that, for example, like you're saying, some new data is just the, the secondary, especially if importantly that delayed reverse. So basically, like a one where they had a fracture and you try non-operative, as you said, may not be as bad as we thought it was. I think is really important, right? Because it gives us the opportunity for a lot of these patients to treat them non-operatively. The patients who we've identified as being a little more frail, a little more perhaps high risk surgery compared to a primary. And then if they uh, fail, then you still have something in your toolbox that actually still benefits them quite a lot. Um, as an extension of that, uh, I don't have any evidence for this, but um, we do do a lot of them. So it's my personal kind of opinion that a lot of these outcomes do have to do with um, your experience doing them because as we all everyone on the panel probably knows everyone who does them knows that doing a primary reverse shoulder replacement is a vastly different surgery than doing one for fracture and so i i do believe that a significant portion of the outcomes of reverses being quote-unquote worse is because of things like you know continued tuberosity non-union or you know essentially a deficient uh like a posterior cuff right um so you know i think that if you have somebody who is trained to do a lot of them, especially in a perhaps even delayed um, fracture setting. I think that's very important because even once you get, you know, three or four weeks out and the callus sets in, you have to spend a lot of time, you know, kind of dissecting out and kind of isolating the GT and the LT. I think that's very important. And then second, and it kind of leads you to another question, well, then how do you repair those and how do you ensure that you kind of get good tuberosity healing? I personally still really believe in that um in in terms of um of the outcomes and there's a big difference as you know even in the primary setting for you know how people manage um the cuff even in a primary reverse in terms of you know some people let the tuberosities or, or the or, or the the cuff just fly which uh, uh i think is a detriment personally yeah, I think that uh, it becomes really interesting to think about the algorithms and how you're going to apply a lot of this uh, this evidence that we discussed um, across all of these papers, really, and 
and, and you know, as a trauma surgeon and someone who likes fixing things, I, I it's, it's hard for me to say, see with this fracture that comes in, uh, say, you know, I'm going to maybe put this one on ice and pass to my arthroplasty colleague or, 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 or you know, not do the operative intervention that's best maybe in my hands, but actually, you know, now that I'm not going to operate on this patient, how long do I have to get this patient to my arthroplasty colleague essentially is what the question becomes. And, and, and we, we've looked at the evidence, but we've also looked at different uh, uh, options within our group. In some settings, you can get this patient to an arthroplasty surgeon within a week. In some places, it might take might take a few weeks, might take even, you know, now do we have six weeks? Do we have three months? How long do we have? What's that threshold? And as we're trying to, uh, as we went through different algorithms and, and in the previous literature, as you mentioned, we saw that if you wait, you know, a longer time, that, that secondary operation has become a lot more complex. Maybe you can't expect that same impact, that same result. I think as we're getting more surgeons out there that are getting better with this new technology, that that threshold is changing. And that's what you're seeing with that, the, you know, the, the more up-to-date literature is potentially implying that you can wait, uh, you know, six weeks or maybe, you know, a few months to get and get that patient into the right person's hands. I think it just involves informed decision-making. And when that patient comes to your comes to your fracture clinic, comes to your eMERGE departments, not necessarily saying, you know, we have this option, we have to do it within this time frame presenting, uh, you know, getting that patient to have a good discussion with surgeons who can uh, give those options, but also provide numbers around those options is key. For most fractures, we say we have, you know, one to two weeks if we talk about ankles, wrists, some, some, you know, the common fractures you see, not hip fractures, but some of these more common upper, uh, you know, same day home kind of fractures that were, were essentially proximal humerses, I would include with that patient population. Um, have that time frame, and then you know if the patient chooses to go through this, then 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 we can decide a secondary time period there. But I think that you know what we thought was a a, a detrimental time period to wait is getting shorter. But we just need to provide these options is is the message, and provide them to surgeons who can provide those options. Yeah, I just want to chime in. Sorry, um, you know I'm going to preface this by saying I have uh, the least amount of experience here. I'm just starting out, so. Uh, Obviously, I, I defer to all you guys with much more experience than me, uh, but just kind of um, based on my experience and my training, it's a really interesting uh, discussion talking about delayed reverse and, um, you know, doing the reverse later on, whether it's as a secondary procedure or after, you know, the, the fracture is consolidated a bit, you know, I've seen it done different ways, different philosophies. I did residency on the East coast and then uh, fellowship out on the West coast. Um, you know, if you were to do a reverse, let's say, uh, in a delayed setting where the tuberosities are either malunited or they're resorbed a bit, you know, it questions how can you get reliable healing if you were to repair the tuberosities back. However, I've seen it done both ways. In residency, you know, they're really adamant about um, repairing the tuberosities. You know, there's a lot of talk out there. If you repair it well, you get better external rotation. People are able to, you know, reach the back of their head with forward elevation uh, and external rotation. Um, but I've also seen it done where in fellowship, believe it or not, uh, people would uh, disregard the tuberosities. And I've seen patients do well with that as well. Um, I think, um, you know, I've only done a couple in practice, but I think uh, to me, sometimes seeing if the tuberosity is a nice big chunk, uh, big piece, I do like to repair it because I think it's also more of like a uh, uh, more for stability as well, as opposed to just for, for function. Um, but it's, 
you know, it's really interesting trying to see how these patients do uh, in a delayed setting, because at that point, you may not be able to get reliable tuberosity heal healing anyway, and they may do just as well. So it's just interesting. I mean, it hurts, it hurts me as a fracture surgeon to hear, hear you throwing away the tuberosities, but anyways, Brandon, you were going to say something, sorry. Yeah, well, also, I mean, just to, to echo it, Robbie, I also, you know, I just started in practice, I'm a few months in, um, and I came from a very shoulder elbow heavy uh, residency where we did a lot of arthroplasty and the attendings were essentially split and some did ignore the tuberosities yeah. and others repaired them and the results, I was shocked the first time I saw it, um, anecdotally, were actually not that different um, based right. on what I saw. And I remember looking it up and seeing that not repairing the lesser actually didn't seem to or not repairing the subscap was potentially even associated with lower dislocation rates um, with reverse, which is quite interesting and a little bit counterintuitive. Um, I think one of the things uh, that I've been thinking about a lot recently, because I've done a bunch of them recently, um, is you know when you're fixing a, a proximal humerus fracture, it's, head split, it's a fracture dislocation, there's something that's sort of, you know, pushing you to want to operate on it. Um, if you want to leave reverse as a good option later, what are the ways that you can sort of least muddy the waters or uh, least increase the risk of that revision surgery while still giving someone a good initial fracture fixation? Um, and so, you know, I, I tend to use fibular strut allograft um, in these cases, and I've started reconsidering that. And I'm thinking about moving away from it uh, because now these patients are going to be mine and I'm going to have to do the, you know, revision to the reverse. Um, and it's going to be really, really painful um, having that fibular strut in there. And I know that. Um, and, you know, the question is what people have been using. And so, you know, the question number one is, do we know how to best attempt to fix? Because I, like most of us on this panel, I tell patients. I'm a bone fixing doctor, not a bone replacing doctor. First and foremost, I just hate cutting things out and taking away bone stock, putting an implant risk in that represents a peri-implant fracture and a periprosthetic joint infection risk for the remainder of a person's life. If I think I can fix something and give them an equivalent result, it just hurts me philosophically. There's nothing to support that, um, as a treatment philosophy, except for that. Um, but so, you know, what are the things we can do when we fix these to make the reverse have lower complication rates? Should we have to uh, convert to that down the line? Um, and what are people using instead of, you know, fibular strut? I've used femoral head, sort of metaphyseal bone. I've seen different things used. Um, does anyone have success with something or other, you know, recommendations about ways that will make it easier to fix and then convert to reverse? Great questions, Adrian. Yeah, it sounds like you're eager to answer that because I, I, I have, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, yeah, no, sorry, I rarely put my hand up unless I really want to talk. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I agree with you. So, it's so funny to hear you say that you, you, you stopped doing it when they became your patients, right? Because that is the pain of a fibular strut, right? You basically, you know, like put this massive piece of cortex, right? Where you need to like have dull reamers going into. Um, so, uh, so I, actually, you mentioned one. So, I'm a staunch, staunch believer in um, femoral head allograft. Um, and like, I don't know if you guys know that mushroom technique, you know, where you kind of make a little stock and like the bulbous mushroom, because uh, it works wonderfully, wonderfully for even like the old, uh, osteoporotic patients, because essentially once you do it right, you put the mushroom graft in the shaft and the head, just like, if it's a four part, the head just sits on it and you just like pull the tuberosities and they just come 
like almost like it's like magic. <laughs> so, um, and then you know you get really good feedback, and and uh, in terms of we're talking about fixing, you know, in terms of your your uh, your um, your screws, and like if everything fails, um, you know, it's just like regular bone, right? I mean, and I've done a few now uh, where uh, I've had them the femoral head allograft in there, and and it actually has felt pretty normal, if, if to be honest with you, right? So, um, so that's my go to for that. Um, you know, another thing, you know, we we kind of kind of talked about it too. Is uh, you know, I I feel like just even in this conversation, there's kind of as in real life, there's two camps. There's people who like philosophically believe in like bone fixing, and people who philosophically believe in like bone, you know, cutting out and reconstructing. And and really, I think what we're talking about though, especially with this becoming maybe a little more subspecialized, is like what is right for the patient in front of you. Like the reason we have this big toolbox is like we can do all of it, hopefully, right? And then we can provide the patient with informed consent and say, well here's the pros and cons of this. And here's the pros and cons of this, right? Because we all know in a patient over 65, there are rates of a periprosthetic complication from an ORIF failure. So screw cutout, you know, head collapse, all that kind of stuff is like massively high. And I think like twice as high as somebody who's like, you know, under that age group, right? So, I mean, sometimes if they're superior, supremely osteoporotic, maybe the discussion is, hey, listen, you know, if you want your, uh, you know, your own bone back, we can do this. Here's the failure rate. However, and the the the, the um, bailout is a reverse. However, if you want one surgery that I can pretty much guarantee you from the literature, I can get you 130 degrees of forward elevation, touch the top of your head, you can eat and you can get moving within about you know six weeks or so. That's a reverse, right? And so, what do you want, and what is your risk tolerance? So, I think the onus is on us to kind of philosophically be both of those people and just give the patients you know what they need uh, based on informed consent. I think the the thing I found as an interesting takeaway too is just how um, they felt like one patient population to me initially, but clearly there's just some of these patients are just all across the map, and the you know there are people that we would never offer surgery to at all, you know, as because they're just so frail and that's it's not a good option. And then there are people that are kind of in between, and you know, do we jump right to reverse? Or is their bone stock really bad though, and we don't even really want to try to fix it, but you maybe feel more comfortable. And I think that's sort of where the, the not, not even just the, the data helping you with patient selection within those groups as we do more studies and kind of figure out who's best tailored for which, as well as like what's best in your hands for sure. But obviously who, who also is just set up to succeed based on whatever their medical comorbidities might be. And I think that's, as we've started to look at more of the patients we see as frail too and getting things like A1Cs and other stuff and realizing, you know, these people have unmanaged diabetes or COPD and they're actively smoking and like trying to intervene on some of those in the moment too, even if regardless of which pathway you go down, it's just going to set you up to succeed. And so um, hopefully, you know, the, these fracture liaison pathways become more and more um, abundant, or at the very least, we just as orthopods feel more comfortable managing some of these conditions. Cause ultimately I think that's going to make anybody's outcome better regardless of what surgery they they go down that's awesome um i, I want to be uh a little careful on time because we have like two minutes left uh herman were you gonna we're gonna make a comment because please if you do uh, fire away 
Oh, I just didn't want to take too much time, but I, I feel like this kind of might summarize these uh, kind of ideas that came up. And one, you know, this is, these are hard fractures to treat. And I think that's what we're learning uh, across all of these studies is a proximal humerus fracture, although many felt that it was in the realm of something we can easily just fix and, and kind of get that patient on a life. It's not one of those fractures. And it's, I think it behaves a lot differently than, you know, hip fractures and wrist fractures and lots of other common injuries that we treat. And I think that's, you know, what highlights why non-operative management has become, you know, the literature has shown on an average effect. It's probably something we should really highly consider for a lot of these fractures because on average, we're not great at fixing these things. So I think, you know, we have to consider that even when we talk about all these options on average would between open reduction, internal fixation, hemiarthroplasty, reverse, non-op management, all the options we've kind of discussed. There's different ways we can perform them. And, and on average, maybe the, the most aggressive bone replacing option is the best because we're not going to have a bunch of these complications. We're going to see with these other on average performed operations where you might need a fibular strut and all these other complex things that might subsequently make the subsequent procedures harder. So I think it just, you know, we need to have these discussions with our patients, as Adrian kind of mentioned as well, um, and, and bring these uh, ideas and numbers and, and, and options to them and let them choose and, and really choose what risks they're going to accept and, and and how if they choose an option that we can't necessarily provide in our toolbox, get them to the people who can. So, Oh, that's perfect. Awesome. We had one last uh, buzzer beater question. So we're going to, it's going to be a yes, no answer from everyone. So it was, do you have a top age or a lower functional level that you do not offer surgery to? We'll start up, uh, Adrian, you were typing. So why don't you give us an answer? Uh, yes. No, I actually really like Brianna's answer in the chat box. So I totally agree. So it's physiologic age and and based on risk benefits of the patient. Perfect. Just for those that didn't see what Brianna had typed, uh, had typed there. So the short answer is no. Age looks different on everyone and patients have different goals and risk tolerances. I discuss options and kind of leave the final decision to the patient, which I think, Herman, you were you were nicely summarizing there with uh, with that. Everyone, everyone on the panel kind of agree with that sentiment. There's not really a hard cutoff, but more of a discussion point perfect i want to uh, first thank the panelists because that was an awesome discussion and some really um some uh, great talks and some great papers to review so thank you very much for spending the evening with us and uh, taking the time to talk about your research and agreeing to answer questions and talk about this really kind of fascinating very challenging topic right i think if if you've taken anything away from the discussion it's that no one person has all the answers and probably trying our best to fit the solutions that we have. And we've got some great ones to the, to the patient is probably the ideal. So uh, again, thank you so much for uh, spending the time. Quick, uh, quick comments, which are basically uh, please tune in for the December 20th uh, journal club. So it'd be similar to this one. We're going to talk about uh, geriatric peritrochanteric fractures, another kind of very, topical very um very interesting topic to uh to discuss live so join in for that thanks again uh enjoy the rest of your evening and uh, much appreciated everyone mm -hmm.